The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The DNC is over. The RNC is getting ready to begin a complete preview and a look back. Plus, markets soaring while the middle class hurts. What's going on with the divide and what does it mean for the chances of fiscal stimulus? I'll take you also overseas to talk foreign policy. I'm also going to talk a lot coming up in the next hour and a half. We're going to touch on the U.S. Postal Service and that Louis DeJoy hearing that Nancy was just telling us about because it really did get fiery at some point. And Jen Jacobs, who I just saw at the White House, before coming over here to go on air, she was telling me about her story today and the comments that President Trump made. Because in a speech on Friday, the president said that mail-in voting, quote, will be a tremendous embarrassment for our country. It will go on forever and you will never know who won. This is a very serious problem and something has to be done about it. That's what the president had to say. Five states have already held elections almost entirely by mail, including Republican-dominated Utah, without serious episodes of fraud. So, we got a lot to talk about on that on that front, but uh, I want to talk about some of the polls that our friends over at the Morning Consult have been devouring, crunching the numbers on. The state of the parties, 2020. I feel like we need the dun-dun-dun music. Uh, Eli Yokely is back. He is a political reporter for the Morning Consult. How voters view the major parties' competence has hardly changed since 2016. You write, Eli, nearly four years after Trump's election, voters remain slightly more likely to deem Democrats capable of governing and tackling big issues. What do you know? Hey, Kevin, happy Friday. Um, Thankfully, I never thought it would come, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, we've been doing say of the parties for the last uh, four or five years here at Morning Consult, and uh, we thought this would be a pretty good time to look back at 2016 at about this time and see if anything has changed. I mean, so much in our politics feels uh, quite a bit different from last time around. And whenever we ask voters about these questions of competency, about big issues, keeping the country safe, is capable of governing, not much has changed. Um, Democrats have a a slight advantage on some of these. These are kind of close. Um, so the biggest things that have changed in the last four years is, is voters think these parties are more ideological. Um, but at the same time, uh, driven by partisan voters, they're okay with it. Um, this is a, uh, a different time in our politics, and it's, it's driving a lot of what's happening, I think, in the, pres- in the presidential race right now. I thought what was interesting is how the perception of the parties being more 
um, liberal and conservative skyrocketed. Not skyrocketed, but I mean, the the perception is that the part that the that the Democrats have become more progressive, and that the uh, Republicans have become more conservative. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is explained a lot by the moment in politics we're in. I mean, we for the last four years, we've had a, a pretty hard-line administration. Um, the Republican Party base has shrunk and hardened on the conservative ends, while at the same time, um, in the press, we, we see a lot about um, the, the progressives on TV, whether it be uh, the AOCs of the world who are not as well-known by the American public, or the Bernie Sanders who really are. Um, some of that kind of played out on on uh, TV these last few nights with Democrats really um, trying to flex their moderate uh, their, their moderate credentials during the during the convention, and some of these progressive faces not getting as much uh, attention during that. Um, look, this is a big thing for Joe Biden over the next uh, ten weeks is being able to reach out to these voters in the middle and sort of push back on this notion that the party has has fallen to the left. Um, that is what Donald Trump's campaign over the last few weeks and into the next. Uh, uh, three months is going to be spending a lot of time doing is that he is a puppet of this Democratic Party that has that has swung leftward, um, and you know they spent a but lot of time on on air. Uh, the thing that I love that. about this poll uh, that I find fascinating, and 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 you just did a brilliant job, Eli Yokley. He's a political reporter with the Morning Consult. He's really able to take anyone can do a poll story, right? But but Eli's able to tack it on and and apply it to the conversation uh, of the day which is i think what sets out you as well as the morning consult because this this portion of the of the of the poll you've got share of voters who said that the parties were going in the right direction so for democrats they did the, the they they went up seven points from four years ago and they're up to about like seven and ten democrats think that their party is headed in the right direction okay the republican party they're up 12 points. So Republicans increased by 12 percentage points from 2016. And now a third of voters in the Republican Party think that their party is headed in the, uh, in the right direction. That upward movement, you yeah. write, was largely driven by a nearly 30-point improvement. Wow. Among the party's own voters who have since aligned themselves with the president after some reluctance in 2016. I think that's fascinating because I really think it gets to this notion of, quite honestly, what the Beltway media sometimes misses the mark on, which is the Republican Party, the voters of the Republican Party are very much behind this president. No, it's totally Donald Trump's party at this point. Uh, there's nobody... Uh, and if really you watch, I have to interrupt you, if you watch that convention, that virtual Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden would like you to believe that that's not the case, whether it's Colin Powell or John Kasich. He'd like to, to, to have you think that those never Trumpers are maybe a lot more influential than perhaps they are. Uh, I, you know, I don't think, think that a lot of Republicans uh, at this point would think that the never Trumpers are that influential in the Republican Party, just given, given how much... Uh, things have changed. I mean, Donald Trump is the most popular Republican name um, on the on the list. If you, if you test a bunch of different folks, um, there's nobody close, not even Mike Pence. Um, this is totally his party now at this point, um, and, and as he heads into re-election. Um, and, and the Never Trumpers really don't have a place in it right now. Um, that, can, that can change, right? I mean, look, the Republican Party has changed quite a bit in the last, in the last uh, three and a half years. 
Uh, in 2016, at this point, only four in ten Republicans thought their party was in a good place. Now it's 70 percent. Um, that that is a uh, pretty dramatic change under, under this president, um, and and it shows that Republican voters have uh, have it in them to change how they view things. Seventy nine percent of Democrats now think that a Biden victory is likely, but eighty one percent of Republicans think that a Trump victory is likely. Both sides think they're going to yeah. win. Wow. It, that is true, and Democrats have gone up since we asked this question back at Super Tuesday. They're gaining confidence, but you know it's that classic—it's uh, that classic saying about Democrats always being worried. Almost seven in ten Democrats say they're worried right now about this election, compared to forty-six percent, less than half, who say they're they're confident. Um, there's a pretty good, big confidence gap between the two parties right now. Um, that, that just goes—that that, that, there's a lot of history in the Democratic All right, Party. Let's have some fun because we got two minutes left. What was your favorite part of the election? We're like two months out from the. Uh, I'm going to make this joke a lot over the next <laughs> couple of weeks. We're like two months out from the election. Two plus months. It's a whole Lori Lachlan sentence away from election day. What's two months, right, Kev? Come on, buddy, pick up the pace. You can do it. Got check. Got check, Kev. Focus, focus, Kevin. Check in. What was your highlight of the convention, Eli Yokely? You know, I think that the um, well. First of all, I got to be honest. I loved the. Uh, I did love the uh, the roll call um, and that great shot from uh, downtown St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, was pride of the pride of our state. Um, oh, I here think we go. Voters' favorite part, by Would've the way. Would have been nice if they had uh, some cheesesteaks. Go ahead. I would say voters' favorite part, by the way, as you think back to some polling, uh, was probably the Obamas. I mean, these two people, uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, are some of the most popular people in American politics right now. Get this. 60% of voters have favorable views of both of them, um, compared to like 46% who view Joe Biden favorably. They are a big boost to his um, to his, uh, his campaign, and they will be a, an asset over the next, uh, the next, the next 10 weeks as, as this campaign plays out, even if Joe Biden continues performances like he did last night that were pretty widely lauded. I thought just pure optics, just I, I thought the shot at the end with the cars in the parking lot and the fireworks, they should have played that out all throughout the uh, week. Because uh, I think if you're going to have a television convention, you got to have shots, right? I mean, you got to yeah. have you got to have the images. And I thought they finally got it right at the end for for the big speech. But that that was really interesting to watch. It really captured, I think, the dynamic of the of the social distancing moment. Eli, hang on, uh, we might be coming back to you. But thanks for spending some time with. Kev on the Friday of halftime between the conventions. Coming up, more policy and politics. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerulli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerulli. <laughs> I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And in our chat for our video conference, whatever we use, um, that's one of the running jokes that they make fun of me for is how I always come back from the break saying that. Anyway, enough about that. It's Friday, folks. We made it through one convention. We've got another one to go. And I'm very, very grateful and filled with gratitude and Excited. So welcome back to the program. An expert, truly one of the best in town, or I guess virtual town. Is Washington going virtual now? Will I ever see anyone again? <laughs> Karen Finney, Democratic <laughs> strategist 
and former Clinton campaign spokeswoman. Karen, how are you? Hello. I'm good. Were you there last night? Where were you last night? Where did you watch the uh, the big speech? Of course I was quote-unquote there. (laughs) (laughs) I I watched it from uh, my sofa, I'll be honest, where I've spent a lot of time the last few months between there and my home office. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to say, you know, I'll just say this. Like, I wasn't sure how it was going to feel about a virtual convention and, you know, how were you going to feel that same plug, you know, on the heartstrings that you can get uh, when you're in the hall. And I really thought they did a great job Last uh, night, creating a very yeah. real experience with in a, you know, reimagining a convention. Karen, I, I, I could not agree with you more. And especially for me, the highlight of the convention, and, and I don't give opinion on one. I, I really, really don't. Uh, but I think from an optic standpoint, Braden Harrington, yes. I mean, if anyone saw this kid, this 13 year old kid, I mean, I don't care what party you're in, just his. Yeah. It was it was such a poignant moment. It wasn't overplayed. It was subtle. It was so incredibly impactful. Just and I, I mean, he could have he could have introduced I don't even, he could have introduced any politician, but just Braden Harrington. If you didn't see this video, here was a 13 year old kid who was in his childhood bedroom and he has a stutter, and it it did more to highlight and to humanize Joe Biden, honestly, and and this is my opinion, Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying it's fact, it did more to humanize Joe Biden than any other person, anyone, from past presidents to uh, family members, because it was was some stranger, and I thought it was incredibly, incredibly impactful, Karen. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and also, what a brave young man. I mean, when I was 13, I don't have a stutter, and the idea of speaking in front of my class would have terrified me, let alone, you know, in front of the world, and and, and to know, and just to watch him... You know, he worked so hard through that, and you could tell he'd practice, yeah. and you could see he had it written out. It, you're right. It was humanizing. But, you know, it also, I thought, was it reminded us, um, well, second of all, I'll just say, for any child who has any kind of, you know, different learning ability. I or any child who's different. Sense, or any child who's different, right. period, and figuring that out. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You matter. And look, I think it also sent a signal, which was a big theme of the convention, which is Joe Biden, whether you agree with this or not, I'm just telling you what Mm -hmm. I think part of the message was. Joe Biden sees you. He hears you. He understands. He cares. And that that actually matters. And that was part of the contrast um, that was being set up in terms of, you know, character and empathy. We got hit with empathy a lot, which was great. But, you know, there was a point which was like, I get it. I get it. But he uh, so Braden was just a wonderful end to a week of, you know, just I love that having so many, you know, quote unquote, real people tell their own stories um, and either whether it was an experience they'd had with Joe Biden or just, you know, the issues that they are dealing with in in, in Trump's economy and, and under Trump's presidency. I thought it was very effective. And you and I both know at a convention, you know, in the hall where you kind of sometimes you can hear part of what the speaker is saying. You can't always hear the whole thing. Yeah. But it's really an effective use of television as a medium. Well, that's okay. So I thought I thought the most effective 
form of the medium that where they utilized it masterfully. And I'm, I really am excited to see if the Republicans follow this because as, as an, as a media observer, as, as an industry, as someone who works in the industry, I thought right. when the fireworks played and the cars, I don't know if anyone saw this after the yeah. speech when, uh, when the nominee, nominee Biden, <laughs> um, and yeah. I'm so particular about these titles and I've been like presumptive democratic president, but, um, when the democratic nominee and his wife were walking out to the fireworks and then they pan, the cameras pan to the cars and folks had their, their flashers on mm-hmm. and, um, and they were sticking their hands out. I thought that that's the image that that to me is as a viewer was the lasting image that I will take away because it really captured the social distancing that, but it still had a, it was like a tailgate, but like not really, Yes, and you know what I mean though? But it really, but it played well on television, Karen. And if you, you know this, cause you're one of the best at this, you've got to have those images. And I think there were some nights and this isn't a knock on them, but there were some nights where you were like, all right, I feel like I'm on another zoom call. That's going a little too long. And I, <laughs> I don't want it to go on and right. on. But with that, it was something to watch. And I thought it was, they couldn't have picked yeah. a better night because of the speech. And well, a hundred percent. And you know, obviously, uh, our presumptive vice presidential or our, our vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, and her husband. And yep. so you did kind of get that classic, you know, shot that we get. We traditionally have when there's the balloon drop at the end. So you had the four of them on the stage, yep. and it was a beautiful night. And I agree with you. And you know, the the lights um, of the car lights and people. A lot of people had those big American flags they yep. were waving, and the and the fireworks. It was it was beautiful and it was very moving. I mean, it, yes. it really was. And you know, because one of the things about the confetti and the balloon drop, right, is that it's 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 very charging. It's very you know, you get a lot of energy out of that. And you're right, it was an iconic moment. Um, and if you and it was one that even if you're watching at home, I think you could feel. And you know, one of the things I think is so important right now is we need to feel good. People need things to feel good about. And so I appreciated that that use of, you know, again, the reimagining, but how do yep. we bring people into this experience when they're sitting in their homes, when, let's be honest, and this is not a partisan statement, COVID has changed our lives forever. And it's these are tough times. And to have you know, to see fireworks and to see, you know, smiling faces and people, you know, saying, okay, it's COVID. Yep. I'm going to get in my car and get out there. That was really exciting to see. And, and I, I do hope the Republicans uh, find a, a way to do that because these conventions are ultimately are about, uh, they're supposed to be about rallying the troops, if you will, for this last big push towards the election. And celebrating democracy. Okay, good, Karen. I'm glad you're lifting yes. me up because I've been kind of tired today. And I was thinking, because everyone all week is saying, oh, the conventions are over we're not gonna have them anymore boo poo and i said no i miss the conventions i love the conventions i think it's like a giant fourth of july party all right in the minute or so that we have left what was one of the highlights for you maybe on policy what was one of the highlights for you of the past week and what are you looking for for next week i would say the the very from a policy standpoint i thought uh, specifically talking about gun safety um, was really powerful. You had different people talking about it from different perspectives. You had the one of the, the Parkland parents. You had a woman who's the African-American woman whose son's life was, you know, essentially changed forever, so her life as well, by a stray uh, gunshot. I thought that was a particularly powerful, um, and I, I appreciate that that's the way they did a number of the policy conversations was to use real 
real people talking about their very real lived experience. I think it's relatable. I think, again, it brings people into the conversation. I guess what I'm looking for uh, this week with the RNC is um, we, I know there, there's going to be plenty of red meat and attacks, but are you, are they going to be able to lay out a vision in addition to whatever critiques you have of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? What is Donald Trump's vision for the next four years of his presidency? We will I find out. We will we find will. out. Karen Finney, thank you so much for making time for me on a Friday. I really appreciate it. She's literally one of the best in the biz, democratic strategist and a former Clinton campaign spokeswoman. Karen and come back anytime and enjoy your weekend. Get caught up on that sleep. Much more policy and politics coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. One down, one to go. A complete wrap-up and preview of the DNC and RNC, respectively, plus U.S. Postal Service Louis DeJoy on Capitol Hill. It got intense. One convention is down. We have another convention to go. Just think a week from today, both conventions will have been completed. Completed. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Joining us for the hour, Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide and principal of New Day Strategy, and Matt Gorman, Vice President at Targeted Victory and former NRCC Communications Director. Roger, all right, you know, I thought that this it was, it was the perfect, uh, regardless of whether or not you are a Republican or Democrat, last night was the perfect peak of the DNC in terms of just the pageantry, the images, I thought they finally got it right in terms of uh, playing to the television medium with the fireworks, the cars, the flashing lights and whatnot. And it was largely a centrist speech. I thought thematically he made a pitch to the suburbs, southwestern Pennsylvania, Flint, Michigan, Youngstown, Ohio, obviously Miami-Dade down there in Florida. Um, what would you think? Come on, give me your give me your quick take. But you have... It doesn't have to be quick, Roger. It's Friday. First off, Kevin, thanks so much for having me, and it's great to be here with that. It's it's so unusual that you would look at this through the prism of of, um, the Philadelphia suburbs. I don't know how you always end up doing that somehow. I know. Um, Maybe it's because I'm very much homesick but go ahead well i'm being honest you know they say i'm not they say i'm not myself on air well i'm being honest i'm home i mean i want to go home okay go ahead roger fisk i love you no, washington I, I largely, kind of kind of go ahead it's been a long six yeah, months. I, I largely agree and i agree with a lot of what um karen said as well i mean first off we don't have anything to compare it to right so you can't say this is better or worse than anything else it's kind of the first lap around the track for these things you know, I think the idea of it being four nights is probably a little much. I think I think in the future you could um, get these things done in, in like three or something. I think it was Hurricane Sandy in 2012 that chopped the day off the Republican convention. Maybe Matt could clarify that for me. But overall, I mean, it told it told a story. It touched different parts of the country. 
And it's no surprise that the former vice president's remarks were relatively centrist because, you know, despite the efforts to portray him otherwise, I mean, that's pretty much where he is and where he's been all along. So uh, I think think they teed it up nicely throughout the week. I think the way that they kind of framed the themes and how they used the people and the geography and the constituencies and that kind of thing. Um, So overall, uh, I went into it kind of thinking this was going to be very kind of clunky, and kind of claustrophobic feeling. And I think it got better also as the nights went on. So those are kind of my overall thoughts. All right, Matt Gorman. All right, what do Republicans learn from both thematically, the performances, and also... <coughs> Excuse me. Bless me. Uh, and what Bless do they you, learn Kevin. As Bless the, you. <laughs> a sneezing is not a symptom of COVID, um, for the record. Um, but what do they learn from for heading into next week? Well, first of all, that it can work uh, with technical. Uh, like that's, that's a great point that, that you just made uh, in that it doesn't need to be boring. If you have crisp, quality, technical work, you can make it work to the best of your ability. Also, visuals, like you were saying, the fireworks. I miss the balloons. Fireworks, <laughs> well, I guess have to do. What are you going to do? But in terms of more political stuff, you can point very clearly to what the theme was running through this convention and how they were trying to sell Joe Biden. They were talking about his compassion, his decency, um, and really, in essence, his humanity. So that ran through in all the speeches and culminated last night. He didn't say the word Trump once last night during his speech, not once. And I thought that was shocking. I, I didn't even realize it until afterwards. But you know, what they need to recognize, or I mean, uh, they as Republicans, is they need to have a consistent theme that builds. And it can't be about side issues. It needs to focus on one of two things, honestly, both the economic crisis we're in, 10% unemployment, and the global pandemic. Everything else is great. You can talk about it, but likely voters will not be voting on it in large numbers. You know, I, I think that's really, really smart. Uh, and I think that I, I, especially in terms of the culture war issues, and I thought Peggy Noonan, again, regardless of whether or not you disagree with her, but Peggy Noonan nailed this in the Wall Street Journal earlier this morning uh, when she really laid out the way that Democrats are viewing this election and the way that Republicans are viewing this election. Now, she tends to lean more conservative. And so she made the argument that the Republican prism is, is more accurate. But I think the, the battleground camps of Democrats viewing this as the, the way that Joe Biden described it last night as, as a light versus darkness and, and this this fight for the soul of the country, as Joe Biden frequently says, versus what the Republicans are viewing this as, which is just reopen the economy and get my kids back to school. And I, I think it's fascinating because i think we in the media sometimes make it a little too simple because it is obviously more nuanced but that's the strategies that both campaigns are really operating under just for a ratings check biden's speech was watched by 21.8 million people on tv according to the initial figures from nielsen um and uh that was that that was the most rated speech of the um of the week but it was still down a smaller audience than hillary clinton's in 2000 and 16. Uh, so it, it's it's uh, it's a it's a 21% drop from uh, from Clinton's speech at uh, in the 
in 2016 when she accepted the the nomination. For me, the highlight. I mean, if if I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, Braden Harrington. Did you guys see him? The 13 year old kid, who uh, who did you guys see him? Yeah, yeah I saw him. That, was, that was great. It was it was so incredibly powerful. He was speaking from his bedroom, and he has a stutter, and he. Uh, I thought it did more to humanize Joe Biden than any one of his family members and any one of the and than any other former president that spoke. I I thought because it was someone who was a kid and and it was just it was how do you watch that and not feel any type of reaction? I mean, it was that he was so incredibly moving um, and I thought he was just a rock star. I mean, and anyone just to watch that Braden Harrington 13 year old if you didn't see it make sure you go and, and find it on social media again even if you disagree with the politics of it just what a moving moving moment uh, and Kevin from, think of yep. it this way I mean the the fact that he was involved last night and got through it and practice and all that other stuff that's going to change the trajectory of his life I would yeah. imagine you and know, not like even his, that his what he's able to do and things like that is just going to take off and any kid who knows what it's like to be different at that age is is I mean that that was such a moving act of courage on his part. And just think of what kids are going through right now, not being able to go back to school, all of the not being able to see their friends. I mean, it really was it was a real that to me was the most impactful moment of the convention. Heartless Kevin Cirilli was sitting there thinking, get out the tissues. This is like that was really moving. Coming up, more policy and politics. Uh, and we're going to talk, of course, about the U.S. Postal Service fiery virtual hearing up there on uh, Capitol Hill with Louis DeJoy, the new name you have to know, the head of the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, and we are going to cover that as well. Panel's going to stay. Guy Snodgrass is going to check in and chat foreign policy with me coming on up as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcasts on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My hat's off to the David Weston for the for leading the charge on our special coverage all throughout the week on Bloomberg TV and cross-platform for the Dems convention. And next week, same game plan for the RNC. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. It's Friday. We are about halfway through the year 2020. Well, a little more than halfway through the year 2020. We're about six months into the COVID-19 pandemic. And joining me on the line for the hour, two all-stars, political all-stars. I'm filled with gratitude that they are with me. Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist. Matt Gorman, a Republican uh, strategist, person, individual, insider. Uh, Roger's also a Bruce Springsteen fan. And Matt Gorman is also a reality television fan, which is pretty much my split personality. So I appreciate both of them spending time with me 
on this Friday afternoon. I do want to get to the U.S. Postal Service, but I was thinking about this when I was prepping for the show. Where did you think you were going to be, Roger Fisk, in August 2020 when it was January? Where did you think your year was going to take you? Uh, normally by now, I would imagine I would have been in the Midwest somewhere, probably Ohio, Michigan, Iowa, something like that. You know, I've been thinking since I was director of special events for the for the first Obama campaign, there's no one that has that job right now because there are no special events, you know, now that the convention's over. It's too bad. But I'm a road warrior at heart, so I would have been running around this beautiful country. I know. I know. Matt Gorman, where did you think you were going to be in January of this year for August right now? In January, where did you think August was going to take you? For a thing called Gormstock, and that is uh, a massive barbecue I have. With barbecue, with a uh, mass amount of barbecue, grilling, desserts, uh, camping, even if you if you so desire, uh, beer, whatever you desire. Where is this? Why stock. was I never invited? Why? Why well, is you know now I'm, this this is getting way very off select, Kevin. Very select. Uh, but it's uh, up in uh, up in a family, uh, my family's place up in um, uh, the Northeast. Oh, and, it's a family uh, yeah. thing. No, it's actually for friends, but that, that, that's oh. a family house. We have, okay. we have a lot. We have a lot. Of, we have a lot of space. But uh, yeah, Gormstock was going to happen on the twenty ninth uh, this month. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kevin, I've, Kevin, I've gone the last five years, so I don't know why you didn't get invited. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I invited Christine too. Yeah, yeah and Barada got an invite, and Barada not Kev. And you know, see what I deal with. See that they 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 make they all want to get on air, but then they don't invite you to Gormstock. I see where I stand, Matt Gorman. Okay, okay. All right. Well, you know what? Next time I make pizza, you're not invited. I'm just kidding. Um, let's talk about the U.S. Postal Service. Maybe. Oh, maybe my invitation got lost in the mail. <laughs> That's hey, what I hello. <laughs> All right. I have such a lame joke. Okay. Uh, President Trump and the U.S. Postal Service. President Trump described the nation as unready for the volume of mail-in ballots expected by November, but Postmaster General. Louis DeJoy told senators in a hearing earlier today that the Postal Service is prepared. DeJoy said, quote, the American people can feel comfortable that the Postal Service will deliver on this election. And he said and he went on. He, and Trump is saying and he said this earlier today that with um, that states are rushing to expand mail in voting and aren't adopting sufficient safeguards against fraud. All right. So you've got DeJoy saying one thing, Trump saying another Matt Gorman, you're a Republican. Okay, so where is the party on this? Because I also am reading, you know, the journal and other places that that in Republican states, a lot of Republicans want this. Leader McConnell wants this in Kentucky, for example. So what is it? What gives? The party should be pro not talking about the Postal Service in, in theory, <laughs> right? Like, because, it, look, the Postal Service, obviously, like, again, it needs to get the funding. It needs to make sure that's prioritizing, you know, getting elections to vote. But every day we're talking about the Postal Service, and we need to get that problem solved. That's what I'm, not, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. Every time, every day we're talking about this problem is a day we're not talking about how to reopen schools, as you were saying, or restart the economy, as Peggy Noon was saying. It's another day how we're not talking about how to figure out this pandemic. So it's really important, as I was saying before, we are 74 days or so out. Uh, early voting in North Carolina, which is going to be a very important state for the Senate, and the House and the president presidency uh, starts first week of September. 
You don't have time to waste, uh, you know, going down rabbit holes uh, when it comes to issues that you can solve or should be solving a lot easier. So my, my, my point is we need to solve this postal service problem. The more we talk about it, the harder it's going to be for but Republicans. But it's too late to solve it. I mean, they, they should be planning for elections two decades from now. I mean, they got to do something. But, I mean, this should have been talked about years ago. And, and, but, I, you know, but it's, it's a polarized topic, Roger Fisk. Well, yeah, I mean, and I agree with a lot of what Matt just said in, in terms of communication kind of tactics. I, unfortunately for the Republicans, it all kind of orbits around this core issue of kind of competency, which is, you know, they're just going in so many different directions. You have, you know, the president is kind of peeking around the drapes and, and, and kind of threatening that the Postal Service will be pulled back a little bit. You have his apparatchiks running around saying that there are no changes. You have the Postmaster General today saying to Senator Portman, you know, we all feel bad about this dip in our service. So as soon as the Postmaster has admitting that there's a dip in service, it kind of obviates all the other talking points about that there is no change. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it, it reflects well. To Matt's point, it uses up oxygen that they should be using to, you know, kind of go at some of these major challenges that if they can't get their arms around the economy and the, and the, and the virus response, then really nothing else matters. And it just doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't look good for them when they're just going in five different directions four of which are easily proven to be false or dishonest with like a 30-second Google search. Senator Rick Scott, typically a Trump ally, added doubt uh, to the president's claim. He is a Florida Republican. He said, quote, in Florida, we've had mail by vote for a long time and it's worked really well. So we're going to leave it there on the U.S. Postal Service. Coming up next, a pivot to foreign policy guide Snodgrass is going to join the show. The panel stays Roger Fisk and, of course, Matt Gorman. I'm also going to ask Gorman about this Lori Loughlin sentence. Two months till an election. Two months is about the same time. That it is what Lori Loughlin and Aunt Becky got sentenced today in jail. But Teresa Judice got 11 months. What gives? Um, also, that question that I asked at the start of the segment, ask yourself that. Where did you think you were going to be in January? Where did you think August was going to take you? I've been thinking about that. When it, when it was January, where did I think I was going to be in August? And not necessarily career-wise, not necessarily locations. Where did you think you were going to be mentally? Are you there? There's still time left. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I want to talk now foreign policy and national security ramifications of a Biden presidency, especially given that acceptance speech last night. Guy Snodgrass is on the line. He is CEO of Defense Analytics. He is the former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He is also author of the book Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. And Guy, you have a new book coming out. Plug it for me. And what is it about? Where can people go pre-order it? Kevin, you're the best. Uh, yeah, you're right. So I've got a new book coming out. It's called Top Guns. Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. It's coming out next month from Center Street, and uh, super excited to get it out there. Basically, it wraps up a couple decades' worth of a career in the U.S. military, and more importantly, what I learned from the people I was surrounded by, like the incredible talent of men and women inside the uniform. So a chance to tell 
their story for a change. I think you just gave me an advanced copy. I think it's in the mail, right? I'm going to get it. Hopefully. That's right, yes. Yeah, and I wife. cannot wait to read this because one of my favorite books is Make Your Bed, which is, of course, uh, about it, well, it's, it's incredible. I've never interviewed him, and I would love to. Uh, but this, uh, you and I have talked about this, and you've actually been allowing me to have a peek into your um, your process as you've been writing this book. And, and it's been really fascinating, and I know that you include a lot of stoicism in it. But Make Your Bed by U.S. Navy Admiral William McRaven. It's it's really one of my favorite books, and I literally keep it on my nightstand. Um, and I, that's why I can't wait to read this, because Guy uh, was literally it flies these planes i mean he's you're a fighter pilot <laughs> you're the fighter pilot so you're <laughs> able to to really talk about that and and one day i know you're going to take me up in the air with you and i cannot wait um but it's going to be fascinating to read this book and to read all of those lessons it makes I, I i'll talk about it more after i read it but based upon the conversations that we've had over the past couple of months i'm very excited truthfully to read this book and i read a lot of books that I'm not excited to read. All right, Guy, what does what would a Joe Biden presidency mean for a uh, for foreign policy? What did you, what'd you make after you watched the convention? Yeah, so I think what I'm seeing so far in kind of foreign policy realm is this week at least, it's all Biden all the time. Uh, he gave an acceptance speech as he accepted the party's nomination, which I think from what I've seen, the reverberations around Washington, D.C., and now here in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, was that it was received very positively, and largely because some of the concerns were what had been threatened by the Trump administration, that there might be a rollback. Uh, there was, was concern because of sequestration and the Budget Control Act that that caused some significant harm to military readiness. So what would happen under a Biden administration? And you watched as Vice President Biden sought to actively allay those fears. He wanted to put to rest the concern that he's somehow not a friend of the military or that he would abandon our allies and partners. In fact, he, he did the opposite. He doubled down that he would look to restore America's place in the world as a leader for democracy. And I think that that's really what this gets down to is simply uh, you've watched for the last three and a half years as a lot of, a lot of our longstanding allies and partners, the members of the NATO alliance, Japan and South Korea and Australia and the Indo-Pacific, you know, nations around the world that we've long worked with have been scratching their heads saying, what is going on with America right now? So Biden sought to actively reassure those nations that should his administration come into power in January, that there would be a restoration of America in its traditional leadership role in the international scene. Guy, but okay, so, you know, we get these the implications yesterday from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Monday we're going to have Brian Hook on. Uh, he was supposed to come on today, but we had a scheduling conflict. But, um, you know, when, with uh, Mike Pompeo and, 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 and issuing the snapback sanctions against Iran, the Iran nuclear disarmament deal, I got to tell you, guy, you look at the poll numbers on that, and it's very divisive amongst the electorate, uh, amongst Republicans and Democrats. And so I hear, I hear the argument that you're making, but I'm wondering if next week when— President Trump gets up there and says that he's bringing troops home, that he's withdrawing from overseas. I mean that that plays well to parts of the to parts of the electorate. And then when he starts ripping on the Iran deal, I don't know. I think you know, and 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 you've got the UAE Israel agreement from uh, the other week. I don't know. I mean they do have they do have items to talk about. Oh, there's no doubt, Kevin. I mean the the administration has made gains in a lot of different areas. And please don't misconstrue. I'm I'm a fairly nonpartisan guy. No, I know so you I'm are. Not no, saying- no. Yeah, but it's one of those things where, you know, I'm basically 
working to bring in some of the international perspective. As, as you mentioned, right, I, I worked with Secretary Mattis for just shy of two years. We traveled the world. We spoke with a lot of our international allies and partners, specifically, you know, their secretaries or ministers of defense. And what you heard consistently from our allies and partners was just sheer concern that there was a lack of stability, that that there was no way to know what America was going to do at any given moment, that a wayward tweak could could take uh, you know years' worth of planning and turn it on its head and everyone's starting over from scratch. And the other piece of information that I received routinely from our allies and partners was the concern, especially in the Middle East and the Indo-Pacific, that when America demonstrates that kind of instability, that we're not in that leadership role, that opens the door for nations like China and the Indo-Pacific or nations like Russia, even in the Middle East, to fill what would be seen as, as a vacuum. Um, and so a lot of these nations are looking to, if not curry favor, maybe cozy up a little bit with nations that can offer security and stability. And Russia used that opportunity in the Middle East to say, wow, look at what's happening with the with the pullout from Syria, a lot of reversal in course. We've been here for a long time. We'll continue to be here for a long time, and we're going to be incredibly stable. So you're right. There's a lot of great accomplishments that this administration can hang their hat on, but I think there's also something to be said for providing that stable force internationally. Specifically with, with as it relates to the Indo-Pacific region in terms of China, what, Demo, Joe Biden's going to get up there and he's and he's going to say when I or when I talk to Democrats, what they tell me is that he's going to say essentially because the U.S. is is weakened in the world and there's not alliances, it's going to make it more difficult for the U.S. to try to get uh, support from traditional Western allies to 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 kind of separate themselves from the efforts of China to expand and make inroads economically on from a from from a military military perspective and of course on technology as well from the trump perspective they say that that unpredictability has made it more difficult for china to figure out where the united states is going and that it on on policy and that that unpredictability has hindered their ability to grow and that the U.S. has been somewhat successful, especially on 5G, and trying to get Western allies to to uh, separate themselves from China. What do what as someone who's very the expert on these issues, how do those competing ideologies match up with reality? Yeah, I think I'd take it one step back. I'd say the real competing difference here is the domestic messaging versus what's really occurring around the world. Because you're right, the Biden camp has their set and prepared talking points that they want to emphasize, which would seek to diminish the current Trump administration. The Trump administration, of course, wants to wants to say, as you noted, that the instability is actually a positive feature. It's not a detriment for our our national policy and how we're working with allies and partners. Uh, he could also say, for example, you know, President Trump uh, has continued the policy that President Obama started, where they've the administration has continued to ask our NATO allies to contribute more to the alliance, to reach the Wales Pledge of 2% spending on GDP for the military to provide for their own defense. So there are definitely things that this current administration can hang their hat on. I think the, the biggest concern for voters is this just acknowledgement that when you message internally to your own citizens, that's very different than just the realities of what's happening around the world. I saw this firsthand. I was stationed overseas as a fighter pilot in Japan twice. Uh, and I was, you know, and you watch what you're seeing on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or Bloomberg, and then you're actually flying the missions overseas. You're working with your Japanese partners, and those two things don't necessarily line up. And so that's that's the only cautionary advice I'd give is just realize that it is an election season. There should be heightened political rhetoric. 
That's to be expected. I think what really matters is how your allies and partners and your potential adversaries are approaching America right now. And what I can tell you is that our that our adversaries, or at least nations that want to compete actively with us, they enjoy what they're seeing because they can exploit the the, the kind of the gap that's been left by America right now. And our allies and partners are a little bit concerned because they are not used to seeing America operate this way. Guy Snodgrass, stick around because I want to get what's on your radar after the jump with the panel. So stick around for me. Guy Snodgrass is CEO of Defense Analytics, and he's the former director of communications and chief speechwriter to now former Defense Secretary James Mattis. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, what's on the panel's radar, the policy, the politics, and the personalities. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. More coming up next on Bloomberg 99.1. Anybody else remember this song? I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. That's going to be stuck in my head all week. All right, it's time now for my favorite part of the show on this Friday of halftime. I'm calling it halftime because we've got one convention down, one to go. Roger Fisk is with us, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide and principal of New Day Strategy. Matt Gorman, vice president at Targeted Victory and former NRCC communications director. And Guy Snodgrass, CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He's also got this great book before his new one comes out, Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. All right, Guy. What's on your radar? All right, so I've got a fun one, and I think this is in keeping with my national security background. That is, yesterday, there's a group called DARPA, right? It's the Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency. They're the ones who are looking decades into the future and going after the cutting-edge technology. And they put on a pretty big show. It was called the Alpha Dogfight Trials. And so what this was was a one-year-long program. They brought in a lot of different engineers, eight different companies, and they competed an AI algorithm to create basically the ultimate dogfighting machine for fighter pilots. And they Wait. played yesterday. They had a, a fly-off between the artificial intelligence and a Air Force-trained weapons school instructor, and ultimately the AI prevailed 5-0. to zero. That's not fun. That's terrifying. The AI beat the <laughs> well, military? Hey, if, it, if it's on our side, it's good news. Okay, wait, okay, wait. So I'm intrigued. I have so many now the journal. I have a lot of questions. So talk to me. There's an AI system that flew a fighter jet and beat a guy flying a fighter jet? Hey, don't, uh, don't, don't hit the hollow paper mache, you know, pinata. This was wow. a computer simulation. What they did was they took the artificial intelligence algorithms. They trained them over the course of time. Uh, and taught them basically how to do dogfighting. Then they bring in an Air Force instructor and put on virtual reality goggles. They give him his controls, and they basically go head-to-head with each other. And you just hit on the critical aspect. This was a simulated environment. The AI algorithm had perfect knowledge of what was going on around it, whereas the pilot in this case had to actually now kind of work within the artificial constraints of a simulated world. So, no, we're not quite there yet. We're probably years away from having an actual aircraft that's fully autonomous, but uh, this was definitely one big milestone step 
towards that eventual future. That's remarkable. I just learned something through through that. Thank you. And and, and again, when you ask someone like Guy Snodgrass, who is a fighter pilot, what's on your radar, you know you're going to get something good. <laughs> Guy, I uh, that was that was you win the week. Roger and Matt, good luck topping that. Roger, what's on your radar? Uh, well, I'm jealous because when Guy says what's on his radar, he literally means what's on his radar. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, just some, <laughs> some pissy metaphor, but that, that is a good one. I, all right, I stumbled on a kind of a cool stat, which is in terms of the S&P 500, September is an extremely emblematic month, and in 15 of the last 19 years, what the market in, does in September roughly matches the year. So by the end of next month, we'll have a good blueprint for what the rest of the year is going to look like in the S&P 500. That's remarkable because especially when you actually look at what the markets have done this week as a whole, uh, because they had a really, really, really strong, strong week. And it, it, it's been fascinating to watch just how uh, the the stocks have ex- extended their weekly advance. Stocks climbed, led by technology companies, after economic data bolstered optimism that a recovery from a pandemic-induced recession is on track. The S&P 500 notched its fourth straight weekly rally, the longest winning streak this year, and a sense of calm has prevailed amid light volume. It's been 21, sen- ses- uh, 21 sessions since the benchmark uh, has posted its benchmark gauge has posted a decline of more than one percent. Wow! So uh, stocks are are feeling somewhat optimistic. Uh, but there was this great article in the journal just about how the stocks are doing incredibly well, but the it's the lower and the and the the lower middle class and and people struggling uh, economically who aren't invested in the stock market that are really getting pummeled by this uh, by this whole calamity that we're in. Roger, that's a good one. Mac Gorman, what's on your radar? All right. I got my vacation next week. That is on my radar, number one. <laughs> Aren't you? Number isn't there two. a Republican convention? In our- <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yeah, I'll do it from a different place, but hey, I'll be watching it from uh, the beach. Uh, number two, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be watching the season finale. You want to talk about reality shows? I would love Fiesta to talk key about it. On, oh, on MTV. okay. Season, season finale of that on Tuesday. I am, right. uh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. This has literally, this show has gotten me through many a dark a week. And <laughs> in this, show, this is, show is so addictive. Chloe is my favorite character. I think she is a baller. But anyway, I... My cousins and I are obsessed. Oh. We actually text about that show throughout oh, the week. It's a great a, I, mean, I, I am not a fan of Chloe, but you know who knows. Uh, great show though, and uh, of course the Republican convention. Right, yeah. this is the last, really one of the last opportunities uh, to really change the game. Is there a bump this time next week among Trump and Pence in the polls? And as I mentioned before, right, the uh, Trump campaign really see the debates as a turning point in the campaign for them to kind of really get back on top in a lot of these states. They don't necessarily need to even just win. They need to be close to. Um, and, but the problem with that is, like, as I said, early voting in North Carolina starts first week of September, and it cascades on down to the rest of the states. They need to start moving minds now. Next week's the perfect opportunity. Who, But from this week, from your perspective, uh, from the Republican side, Matt, who had a breakout moment for, for the left? Usually when we watch conventions, you're like, oh, they're going to run for president in four years, you know, and we all remember the Obama speech back in uh, 2004. 
I or yeah, 2004. Who who had a breakout moment? I, I'm I'm very interested to see Senator Tim Scott next week, but I thought the medium of the virtual environment didn't lend itself to someone like a Governor Whitmer, for example, uh, who could have you know maybe played more to the crowd or I don't know. What did you think? I, I was ex- going to say the exact same thing. The thing I remember most about Obama's speech was him raising his voice, his cadence, he, he, the, the speaking and, and feeding off the room, uh, sitting very you know stoically, silently in a room, much like you do for the State of the Union responses. It, it was that type of differential between the president in the, in the uh, House chamber and you know the opposing party afterwards sitting silently. So I don't think there's really any breakout moments because for it to be a breakout moment, the crowd helps to nudge that along, and it obviously wasn't that this year. You know, uh, I thought that was interesting. And, and hey, Guy, he said stoic, but he didn't use it the way we use it. Uh, Here's what's on my radar. Pfizer and BioNTech have said that their COVID-19 vaccines that they are jointly developing are on track to be submitted for regulatory review as early as October. And they have also released additional data from an early stage study. The company said that the vaccine was well tolerated with mild to moderate fever in fewer than 20% of the participants. The companies are continuing to analyze data from the phase one trials in the U.S. and Germany. And this was according to a statement. The confirmation of their October goal, first announced last month, helped lift S&P 500 futures briefly on Friday as part of a drumbeat of positive news uh, on inoculation efforts that have the potential to end the threat of the damaging lockdowns. The timeline would make the vaccine one of the fastest moving in the world. And some analysts are even expecting the vaccine to be approved for use by November. Wow. So I think the biggest unknown question mark, the October surprise could be coming from the vaccination front. Thank you to Guy. Thank you to Roger. Thank you to Matt Gorman. And most importantly, thank you to you for listening and i will be back next week always grateful for you to listen i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg tv and for bloomberg radio enjoy your weekend get some rest drink some water and keep on listening to bloomberg 99.1 collaborate for a greener future at the bloomberg green festival a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.